God, God, we love you, and we are thankful for you this morning. God, as we continue our, our series and multiply, and as we kind of close off this section of, of the church, God, I pray that you would, you would speak through me. How you know I've been struggling with what to say today, and so I pray that the words that come out of my mouth would be your words and not my words, that they would be the words that you would have for your people in this, your place on your day. This is all about you, God. God, give us ears to hear this morning. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in a series uh, called Multiply. Uh, it goes along with our small groups. I encourage you, if you haven't grabbed a book yet, there's seven left out there on the table. And so if you haven't gotten one, grab one. Get a book. Go along with us. Even if you're not in a small group, uh, that's fine. Uh, if you'd like to be in a small group, it's not too late. These small groups are going to be going for a while. And so uh, you can get in, and it's not too late. There's one on Monday night, and there's one on Thursday mornings. And so I encourage you to get involved in one if you can. Uh, but we have been, we're going to kind of close off section two here of our Multiply series, right? Section one, the first three weeks of the series, are really just talking about what is a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? What does it mean to, to, to follow him, right? And so really what it came down to was being a disciple of Christ is holding so loosely to the things of this world and so tightly to the things of God that the only thing that matters is Christ. And that everywhere he calls you to go, you will go. No matter what he calls you to do, you will do. Because you are his disciple. You follow him. And, and in this, this section two, we've been talking about the church. And, and in the first week, we talked about, the first week of section two, we were talking about the church. We talked about how important it is to be with one another, to, to love one another. To, we looked at all the one another's in scripture, right? About how, how we can be with one another. And the, the, the phrase that I loved that week was you cannot, it is impossible to one another yourself. You need to be a part of a body to have a one another. Right? And last week we talked about the unity of the church. And, and from the unity of the church, John 17, Jesus prays that, that we would be united. Why? So that the world would know that he came, that God sent him. And so the world would know that they, that they are loved by God. That not only did Jesus come for them, but Jesus loves them. And so today we kind of, we, we take the, the next step out, if you will, in the circle, right? Talked about kind of life inside the church, what's the purpose of the local church. Now we're going to talk about the global church. I found it really, it was a God thing this morning, because I, as I was coming in and I was thinking about it, alabaster offering. We're taking an alabaster offering, why? For our, for our missionaries around the globe on the day that we talk about the global church. I think that's just amazing. Did you know that the Nazarene church, our denomination, has churches in over 160 world areas. I believe the number is 162 now this year. We are a global church. We're a global denomination. We are all around the globe. But what does it mean to be, to be a global church? As I was thinking about this, uh, you can ask my wife, I've been struggling kind of all week as far as where to take this today and how to, how to preach this today. I came across this this parable of the church. And I, I want to read it to you this morning because I think it's a good, a good start off to where we're going to go today. Here's a, a parable of the church. <clears throat> Listen to this. 
on a dangerous sea coast, notorious for shipwrecks. There was a crude little life-saving station. Actually, the station was merely a hut with only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the turbulent sea with little thought for themselves. They would go out day and night, tirelessly searching for those in danger as well as the lost. Many, many lives were saved by this brave band of people who faithfully worked as a team in and out of the life-saving, life-saving station. By and by, it became a famous place. Some of those who had been saved, as well as others along the seacoast, wanted to become associated with this little station. They were willing to give their time and energy and money in support of its objectives. New boats were purchased. New crews were trained. The station was, that was once obscure and crude and virtually insignificant began to grow. Some of its members were unhappy that the hut was so unattractive and poorly equipped. They felt a, a more comfortable place should be provided. Emergency cots were replaced with lovely furniture. Rough handmade equipment was discarded and sophisticated. Classy systems were installed. The hut, of course, was discarded and torn down to make room for all the additional equipment, furniture, systems, and appointments. By its completion, the life-saving station had become a popular gathering place, and by its objectives, and its objectives began to shift. It was now used as sort of a clubhouse, an attractive building for public gatherings, saving lives, feeding the hungry, strengthening the fearful, and calming the disturbed rarely occurred. Fewer members now were interested in braving the sea on life-saving missions, so they hired professional lifeboat crews to do this work. The original goal of the station wasn't altogether forgotten, though. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations. In fact, there was a symbolic lifeboat preserver in a prominent room with a soft, indirect lighting which helped hide the layer of dust upon the once-used vessel. One dark, stormy night, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in the boatloads of, boat, boat of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and obviously from distant shores. The station was in chaos. The event was so traumatic that the people contracted, contracted for outbuildings to be constructed so, further, for, so future shipwrecks could be processed with less disruption. At the next meeting, there were strong words and angry feelings which resulted in a division among the members. Most of the members wanted to discontinue the station's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to their normal social life. Some insisted, however, that their rescue was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But the latter were ignored and told that if they wanted to keep life-saving as their primary purpose, they could begin their own station down the coast, which they did. As years passed, the new station experienced the same old changes. It evolved into another club, and yet another life-saving station was begun. History continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that coast today, you will find a large number of exclusive, impressive buildings along the shoreline, owned and operated by professionals and members who have lost all involvement with the saving of lives. I read that parable this week and I was just profoundly struck by the church. As we've been talking about the church these last few weeks, there's, there's a sense in which we've forgotten our purpose. And we've moved away kind of from our purpose. Our purpose is saving lives. 
Our purpose is saving lives. That's why we have one another. That's why the, Jesus calls us to be united, why he prays for our unity. Our purpose is saving lives. Not just here, but around the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You can, you can find this imagery of, of God's love for the world all throughout scripture. What would it look like for us to have a passion? What would it look like for us to, to have a passion for the world? To see the world as God sees it. This week, we're, again, we're talking about the global church. And again, the Nazarene church has, has 162 churches, uh, not churches, 162 world areas in which we are in and ministering for the gospel. If you want to go online, there's all kinds of videos to see what, what God is doing in all of these different places. There were so many that I couldn't even pick just one. I was going to show you one this morning. But I thought I might just talk about this. What does it look like to have a global passion? What does it look like to, for the church to be, to be a global church? If you turn with me, we're going we're gonna to hang out in 1 Timothy this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And as you're turning there, just a little, little background for you. 1 Timothy chapter 1, is, uh, is, is, this is written by Paul to Timothy, a pastor there. Timothy is, is in Ephesus somewhere. And in chapter 1, Paul is basically giving Timothy this instruction. Guard the gospel. Guard the gospel. Whatever you do, guard the gospel. Protect it. Right? Look out for false teachers. Guard the gospel. And then we get to then we get to, to 1 Timothy chapter 2 here. And here's, here's what he says. This is Paul's words to Timothy. I urge then, first of all, right? So guard the gospel. And then here's the first thing you need to do, Timothy. I urge you, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and human beings, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. This is, this is uh, someone said that this passage is, is, uh, <clears throat> is the Bible in miniature and the gospel in essence. That's what this, this, this scholars have kind of told us this passage. This is, this is a, a key passage as we talk about a global church, having, having a love for everyone, right? And, and here's, here's kind of the exhortation that Paul gives us here. Pray for everyone. Pray for everyone, he says. Pray for all people, maybe in some of your translations. Pray Pray for everyone. Right, here's, the, here's the thing about talking about global missions is kind of, a, or the global church is, for some people, kind of like, it's just uncomfortable to talk about. It's kind of like on the same level as talking about tithing, right? Talk about tithing because we're uncomfortable talking about money. But we talk about global missions and sometimes we get uncomfortable because we don't want God to call us over there. Right? That's not for me. That's, that's not for me, God. I'm not going to go over there. I'm called to here. Right? I know you've called me to here because 
because I'm here. <laughs> you know? And so sometimes we get a little uncomfortable talking about global missions because, oh, what if God is calling me over there? I just want to say at the start this morning, God is not calling each and every one of us over there necessarily. But I think a lot of us discount that possibility too quickly. Right? We can't all go, because then who would minister here? But we are all called to participate in global missions. Paul tells us the, the, the most important way here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Pray for everyone. Pray for all people. And this isn't, he's not talking necessarily about just praying for, for individuals. He's not saying pray for, for individual people. Really the language here is talking about pray for, for all kinds of people. Right? Remember that, that Paul is really Paul is writing to Timothy, and Timothy is in Ephesus at this point. And in Ephesus, there are Jewish Christians and there are Gentile Christians. Right? There are these two groups of people. There are two kind of kinds of Christians, if you will. And there's tension there. And Paul is saying here, pray for, for all kinds of people. Not just the people that look like you, not just the people that you agree with, not, the, not just your kind of people, but pray for, for all people. Pray for all people, he says. Right? Not individuals, not groups, but, but there's some Jewish Christians, some, some Gentile Christians. And let there be some diversity in your prayer, Paul says here. Right? Your, your prayers are to be, to be filled with diversity. It doesn't matter if you're, you're Jew or you're Gentile or you're rich or you're poor or, or, or your ethnicity or anything like that. God, pray for all people, Paul says. I want to ask you this morning an important question. Are your prayers filled with diversity? Are your prayers filled with diversity? Is there diversity in your praying? What kind of people do you pray for? I think this is a, this is a, a, a big thing here. Because sometimes I think we allow our prayers to maybe get a little elitist or, or nationalistic. But Paul says to pray for all people. All people. We need to be praying for, for those in Iraq and Iran and Syria. We need to be praying for those in Africa. We need to be praying for, for all people. And here's why. So that all people would know. Maybe praying for all people. That God would be, be a light to these people. That they would find God. That, they would, that God is not just somehow uh, here in this country, but God is everywhere. God wants the whole world to know, right? For God so loved the, the world that he gave his only son. I think our view of the world sometimes is, is a little bit too narrow. I think we need to broaden that out. Paul says here to Timothy, pray for, for all people, every kind of person, Paul says. He also says to pray for the leaders in high positions. Pray for your leaders in high positions. And, and this is interesting, too, because Paul is writing to Timothy in the time where, where Nero is reigning over. over. And Nero is, is one of the historically great persecutors of Christians. Right? Not just persecuting like we would think of persecuting, but, but killing Christians. Right? He wanted nothing more than just for the Christians to be just done. 
right? And so, so this, is what, this is who Paul, Paul is writing to Timothy and says, pray for the leaders in high positions. Now, I guarantee you at this point, there are very few, if any, Christian leaders in this, in this place. But he's saying, pray for these people. Pray for the people that are persecuting you. Pray for your persecutors. And this is just this is a this is a crazy statement by Paul here. Pray, pray for all people, not just some people, and pray for, for those in authority. The same people who are who are persecuting you, the same people who are coming after you. And for what? What do we pray for them for? That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Pray for peace. That our leaders, as they lead, would lead towards peace. And not just a peace within, but a peace without as well. We pray for all people. And we pray for our leaders that we would, we would have peace. I think this is just a, it's kind of a, it's just one of those statements, you know, that you think about and you're thinking, this is really hard. This is not one of the easier commands in Scripture. Pray for everyone and pray for your leaders. I think innately we have an, an us versus them mentality. Our human nature is survival of the fittest, right? It's us against them. I'm going to win. Paul says, pray for everyone. Pray for leaders, that there would be peace, that we might live in a peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. I think it's just, it's amazing, I think. So why? Why would we do this? Why is it that we would, why is it that we would pray like this? What's our motivation here? Why, why, is, why is Paul asking us to do this? What's the motivation behind praying for all people, thinking in a, in a global nature? Why, why do we, would we pray for all people? Why would we pray for our leaders in authority? Why would we pray for peace? What is, what is the, what's the motivation here? What's the, even the theological motivation, if you will? And here's, here's kind of the first thing, right? God, God desires the salvation of all people. God desires the salvation of all people. Everywhere, all people. You read this, verses 3 and 4. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God desires the salvation of all people. And here's the coolest thing. When, when our prayer, when we begin to pray for all people in this vein, of praying for the salvation of all people, our hearts become connected with the heart of God. That our prayers become connected with, with the desires and the will of God. That God desires a salvation of all people. And as we begin to pray in that way, we become connected with the mission of God. Our hearts become connected with the heart of God. What could be more spectacular than knowing that we are praying the prayer that God wants us to pray? Knowing that we have a passion for the things that God is passionate about. Knowing that we have a love for the people that God loves. Knowing that we want salvation for the same people that God wants salvation for. Right, we pray in this way. We pray for all people and we pray for our leaders because God desires the salvation of everyone. 
All right, if you turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Everyone. Even the language here is not an exclusive everyone. It's not, a, not an everyone within a certain realm. It's just straight up everyone. That everyone would come to repentance. God desires the salvation of all people. And when we pray this prayer, when we pray for the salvation of all people, when we pray for, for a global coming of Christ, we are praying right alongside God. Praying right in line with the mission and the purpose of God. Our hearts are in line with the heart of God. Why else do we pray this way? Well, we pray this way because God deserves the honor of all people. God deserves the honor of all people. Not only does he want the salvation of all people, God deserves the honor of all people. Right? If you look in verse 5, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, For there is one God... And one mediator between God and human beings, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, this has now been witnessed at the proper time. Right, there, is, there is one God. One God. Even just saying this is, is a powerful statement here. That there is one God. There are not many gods. There is not a separate God for different parts of the world. There is one God. And this one God desires the salvation of all people. This one God deserves the honor of all people. Isaiah chapter 45 talks about this, this one God. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21, 22. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. For who foretold this long ago? Was it not declared from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me. A righteous God and a Savior, but there is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. For I am God and there is no other. Turn from me, or turn to me and be saved. And the, the global churches, the as we think about it, the global church, the heart of the global church is this, that every knee would bow and that every tongue would confess, as Philippians 2 says. God desires the, the, that every single person would glorify him. This is what God wants. And lastly, because, because Jesus, why would we pray for this? Because Jesus died for everyone. I mean, it sounds like a pretty obvious statement there, but we pray for, for, for God to come all over the globe because Jesus died for everyone. Not just for you, not just for me, but for everyone, right? We go back to 1 Timothy, <clears throat> verses 5 and 6, and here's what it says. For there is one God and one mediator between God and human beings, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witness at the proper time. Right, this is the passage that, in fact, scholars said, this is, this is the Bible in miniature and the gospel in essence. Let me read this again, verse, verse 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and human beings, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself as a ransom 
for all people. This is, this is the gospel, right? This is the gospel right here, that, that Jesus Christ died as a ransom for every single person, for all people. Right? This, this passage, the, 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 the all, the word all in this passage cannot be overstated. It means all. Not some, not a select group, all. Jesus died for all people. All right, and here's, here's what it is. It's in Philippians 2. So that, so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's this. It's in Revelation chapter 7. If you turn with Revelation chapter 7 with me. This is, this is the goal here, right? After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, they were wearing right robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and, and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the, this is the, this is the goal. This is the goal of Christ, that every knee would bow. And that, that one day, people from every nation, a multitude that no one could count, would be there and they would worship God together in every language, every tribe, every nation. This is why we pray for, for God to come through the world. This is what it means to be a global church. Amen. This is the passion of a global church. That every knee would bow and every tongue confess, no matter where, no matter when. Here's the thing. There are millions of unreached people who have never once heard the name of Jesus. Never once heard the name of Jesus. The heart of a global church is for those people. That one day every knee would bow, including theirs. And every tongue would confess, including theirs, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. This is what it means to be a global church. And maybe, maybe you're not called to go overseas and to be the, the feet of those who bring good news, to be the, the mouthpiece of God in those unreached areas. But someone is being called. And 1 Timothy tells us here, pray. Pray for all people. Pray for all the people. Pray for the leaders. Pray for the, the authorities. Pray for all people. I'm going to ask you this question again, and I want you to really think about it. Is there diversity in your prayers?
Do you pray for all people? Do you pray in the same way for the refugees fleeing their their home country as you do for our neighbor across the street? Do you pray in the same way for for those unreached unreached people groups in the jungles of of Africa or the jungles of of wherever they are that they just we don't even know they're there. We don't know how to get in yet. Do you pray for them in the same way that you pray for your neighbor across the street? And what does it look like to to pray globally? To be a global-minded Christian? And here's the thing. We pledge allegiance to Christ well before we pledge allegiance to anything else. Amen. And our focus is on, on reaching the unreached areas, on reaching the globe for Christ, reaching the people that haven't heard, helping the missionaries that are already over there trying to tell them. Right, so maybe, maybe it's not you. Maybe you're not called to, to leave here. But man, we can pray. And honestly, I really do believe this. I really do believe this. The salvation of the world depends on the prayers of the faithful. And I can't imagine being overseas, going into one of these, these people groups, can you imagine the, the sense of loneliness, the sense of being, being alone as you go in there, not knowing what could happen, and you're just preaching the gospel to them? I think of Jonah going to Nineveh, a place that, that he knew hated him going in. And he goes and he just says, in three days, <laughs> either repent or it's, it's all over. That's the message he goes in there with. And, and I, because God is faithful, they heard that message. I think, I think the, the salvation of the world depends on the prayers of the faithful. I really do believe that. And so how can we pray with diversity? How can we, how can we make our prayers diverse? That we're praying and keeping in mind all these, all these people groups that are unreached. I think it's important. I think we need to keep our minds on that because we really are a global church. We're a global church. Not just our denomination, but all those who believe that Jesus Christ came and died for their sins and raised on the third day. All those who believe that for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. All of us. We are a global church. Paul says here to Timothy, pray for everyone. I challenge you to do the same this week. Pray for everyone. All kinds of people. Have diversity in your prayers. Because we are a global church. I don't think God will have it any other way. I don't. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we're thankful for you this morning. Yeah, sometimes it's hard to, to grasp being a global church. It's hard to grasp being, 
being part of this thing that's bigger than just anything that we can see. But God, we, we, we believe in the scripture that says you love the, the whole world so much that you sent your son. We believe in, in the scripture that says you don't desire anyone in the world to perish, but everyone to turn and, have, and, and be saved. We believe in the scripture. We claim the scripture that says that every knee and every tongue, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that you are God. God, we, we believe and we claim the scripture in Revelation that says that, that on that day, a, a multitude that no one could count from every nation and every tribe and every tongue would be together and worshiping you. God, help us to, to pray into that reality. God, help us to, to pray diverse prayers. Help us to remember all, of the, all the unreached people groups that are out there that have never heard your name, but that need to. God, we love you. And we give you all the praise and all the glory this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? As Jenny, I want to remind you that uh, if you're a member, we're going to be doing board, uh, board elections in the fellowship hall after this. And so uh, just stay a few more minutes extra and just make a pit stop in the fellowship hall. But let me just pray this prayer of blessing over you this morning. May the God who created the universe, who created you and me and every living being here, may he give you a passion for what he's passionate about. May he give you a heart that is in line with his heart. May you be reminded of the global nature of our church. And may you be reminded of those who have never even heard the name of Jesus. Go and make a difference this week for him. Go in peace. Amen and amen.